Welcome to another session of PhDivas. This is Liz. And this is Zain Yao. And uh, for those of us who are familiar with our podcast, you may have noticed our very beautiful picture of the two of us. Mm-hmm. Very and, beautiful. And you may have admired how nice that photo was. Well, um, that really didn't have to do with us. It had to do with the talents of our amazing photographer and fellow PhDiva, Michelle Tong. Um, who, among her many talents, um, and she's also graduating this year, includes that she is a fantastic photographer. And actually, she's I'm very proud to introduce her because uh, even, Wait, though she's she's not, guys. even though she's not <laughs> in the humanities, mm-hmm. she is a fellow Chinese-Canadian from Toronto. <laughs> Yay. Which is actually one way that um, our friend Stephen connected so us originally. The, oh, yeah. There's a lot of Chinese-Canadians, right? I was going to say that they're all in Cornell. Yeah. There's, a co- there's quite a few of us, though. But it was like a friend, Stephen, like, who is in English that knows... Yeah. Um, Michelle through one of the campus Christian fellowships mm-hmm. and he's like oh you shouldn't meet Michelle because she's also from Toronto and she's also Chinese and you're both kind of weird or something to that effect <laughs> wow <laughs> yeah and he said the same thing to me about you yeah and so we're like oh <laughs> we should meet each other mm-hmm. and it's been fantastic but um welcome to the show Michelle thanks yeah. guys thanks for having but, me so how would you introduce yourself Michelle um I am a recently graduated PhD student from the department of psychology here at Cornell. Mm-hmm. Um, and I tell people the kind of psychology I do, I couldn't tell what mental illness you might have by talking to you, and I'd have to take out your brain and slice it to be able to tell. <laughs> and what do people do? They run away? Yeah, walk away? Back away slowly? <laughs> <laughs> yep, they do. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, so behavioral and evolutionary neuroscience. Um, and how else would I? Chinese-Canadian. Mm-hmm. Um, and... Well, different from you, because my family comes from mainland China, mm-hmm. so we predominantly speak Mandarin, mm-hmm. and that's the other sort of Chinese population in Toronto. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. And, of course, you talked about slicing up brains, but I remember one of the first events we met at was actually a talk at the Society for Humanities that was about perfume. Yeah, that's right. And I just came because, um, if people might remember from previous podcasts, I really love perfume, but <laughs> Michelle actually has an academic interest in it. That's right. Yeah, I study um, memory for smells or memory, study smell memory, olfactory memory. That's so cool. When I worked at the National Institutes of Health as a summer intern, mm-hmm. I actually worked in... Um, in INDS, and I did olfactory bulb work. I was trying to actually oh, track n- neural stem cells as they went from the olfactory bulb, yeah. the master migratory stream. Yeah. See, I'm pulling out some sh- stuff. <laughs> I need to stop swearing so much. I was pulling out some things I yeah. haven't done since for one summer in 2008, but what I remember the most about the, these rat experiments was that we gave them a smell, and the idea was to give some more smell than others and see if there was there were more cells or where they were going. And it was like an MRI tracking, like so we injected neuron, sorry, um, micro micron. We injected iron oxide particles into the brain, and ideally they should be phagocytosed by the cells, and then you can monitor their tracking by MRI. Oh. And then we could also section the brain and look at them fluorescently because they were du- dual labeled. And what I remember is that we gave them banana flavor. It's called amyl acetate. Mm-hmm. And that is actually the flavor in Laffy Taffy's. Yeah. And I just could not, like, I would look at these rats and they're like sniffing, yeah. sniffing, sniffing, like, where's my banana? Where's my banana? And I'm thinking, I can't do Laffy Taffy's again in my life. Yeah. <laughs> oh, because then I just felt like a rat, you know, with someone dangling a Laffy Taffy over me. Yeah. Yeah. And that's actually a really common um, stimulus that mm-hmm. we use in olfactory research. So do you have similar associations with bananas now? Mm-hmm. Um, I guess not really, because I try not to smell the stuff we use too much. Oh, okay. <laughs> but that's a great idea. No one told the summer intern that. Yeah. Not, that's, I didn't know you did that. It's I did cool. a lot of stuff. <laughs> yeah, and I guess that's kind of what I do too. What type of smells do you work with? And also, like, then does it affect how you perceive smell in everyday life or what perfumes you want to choose or mm-hmm. anything like that? Um, so the smells we work with is it's an interesting question. So I'm interested in how we learn about smells and then how we remember them. Um, and that means that often it might be very easy to, instead of using familiar smells, to use smells that the mice that I work with have never encountered before. Mm. So typically we use mono Like car- something fresh? Uh, sorry. Yeah. I'm right. sorry. Go ahead. You're, you're, you're being scientific. We typically, we typically use like mono molecular odors, which we don't encounter ever. So complex smells in our environment, especially perfumes, are always multiple, multiple molecules, different types of molecules. But 
Um, so the unfamiliar smells would be just one thing. Yeah, like one type of molecule. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then we go on and we're interested in, okay, this completely unfamiliar odor, they have no associations with them. So what happens in the brain when we begin to form positive or negative associations with a new smell? And how is that remembered? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's really cool. How do you measure that? Um, well, it depends on what you're interested in looking at. For me, um, I'm interested in pairing behavior with um, molecular mechanisms that are involved in memory. Mm -hmm. So in my work, I watch little mice dig in um, scented sand for a sugar pellet reward. Mm -hmm. And then um, either, you know, using PCR um, oh, to see. see what happens at the mRNA level. or What's PCR? Polymerase chain reaction. Okay. I'm sure Liz is <laughs> a, a discovery good that friend. <laughs> actually changed the, changed the scientific world, actually. It was a huge, huge thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. Won a Nobel Prize, I think, for that. Oh, I don't know about I, it. I'm one of those people who, like, use it without knowing its history. Yeah. Yeah. Obviously, yeah. at this point, <laughs> no one cares. Yeah. But. Yep. And then the other thing we do is um, we'll manipulate the different molecular pathways. So either knocking them down, so removing their activity, mm. or increasing their activity and seeing how that affects behavior and memory. That's really cool. And so do you find that translates into, again, your everyday experience of smell? Like, I remember one time we had a conversation about the inadequacy of a vocabulary in our language around smell, because, oh, like, yeah. unlike um, where we have, like, names for colors, um, like, of course, we, in terms of vocabulary around sound, it becomes even less. And then smell is, like, one of the areas of of our lives, one of the five senses that we have the, the least adequate vocabulary to describe. Like we have to like basically draw from so many other places in order to describe smells. Yeah, that's definitely interesting to me because, okay, so the work I do, I'm definitely a neuroscientist, mm -hmm. but my training has been in psychology. And so what you're talking about is the fact that um, human language seems to lack linguistic primaries for smell. Mm -hmm. For example, we have the word red or blue, but there isn't something like that for smell. Mm. We typically talk about an analogy, like mm. vanilla. Doesn't um, smell like yeah. art. It smells like <laughs> it vanilla. Smells like <laughs> or it smells like grandma's cookies or yes. mm -hmm. whatever. So, yeah, and people think that maybe one of the reasons why we have poor memory for smells, as in um, we don't, we're not, we can say that something is familiar um, very few, very, very seldomly do we have a familiar smell. Um, whereas, like, you know, it's easy for us to remember like 80% of flashcards that we see mm -hmm. is maybe because we can't put a linguistic label onto it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But hmm, that's up for debate. <laughs> so, do you use perfume then? Um, I don't actually. Is that a decision that comes out of your work or? Are you also hypersensitive to when people try to make associations mm -hmm. between themselves? And Someone smelled you at one point in your life, and, and like you got too close. I never want anyone to be that close to me again. Well, I made that up point. so that whatever you say now will be perfect. Um, I never thought about it. <laughs> Maybe what it is is I don't use a lot of sense because I study smell, so mm -hmm. um, I want to make sure the mice don't are smelling what I'm trying True. to test them for. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then, I mean, often I joke with undergraduate researchers that, like, look, at the beginning of this relationship, if you're using Garnier Fructis shampoo, you need to use this exact same shampoo every day. <laughs> so you got to um, commit. Yeah. Or, like, don't chew gum. Those are all, you know, those are good lab practices in general, but for an olfactory lab, it's pretty important. Wow. So it's interesting. Mm -hmm. You sort of have to have a heightened understanding of your own everyday life because it can it, it literally follows you to the lab it does yeah and um one really recent interesting finding was that apparently the smell of men induces more stress in laboratory mice really huh. yeah and that this effect would be canceled out by the odor of a woman hmm. a female odor and they so just, what if they wore a, a t-shirt that a woman just wore? Would that help? I'm not sure, but yeah, so then it's definitely, like, the study was that they put, like, a male t-shirt uh -huh. or a male odor into their home cage and found that those animals expressed more stress. Wow. Do you think that's also now changing practices about who's supposed to have access to the animals and stuff like that? Uh, interesting question. I know for myself... That study came out when I had two male undergraduate researchers, mm -hmm. um, and I definitely remember joking about it with them, 
and thinking about what to do. Um, but I'm not sure if it's become part of common practice yet. Because it seems to be really complicated. Because on the one hand, like it might be the basis for exclusion or perhaps even like a gendered hierarchy of lab work. I mean, like it seems like it could, there could be so many problems that opens up, even though it's a really interesting finding, right? Yeah, definitely. But I guess if it's consistent, like the same as right, a Garnier exactly. for yeah. <laughs> Garnier, yeah. whatever it is. I don't yeah, yeah, yeah. It. definitely. Yeah, and I think maybe you can make the argument that it only affects stress researchers. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that in my like in my opinion, it would affect all kinds of behavioral work because stress affects all kinds mm-hmm. of behaviors. Mm-hmm. So it wouldn't just be stress research. Mm-hmm. Wow. Absolutely. Makes sense. You're scowling. No, I I know. I just the implication just seemed like, yeah, like there could be a lot of really interesting but also troubling things that come out of it. That's all. Right. But would it be that um, now, like, men can't work alone with animals? I guess so. Well, I don't. I I guess I don't. I don't know. But I'm just like let's. I guess like let's put on like a Margaret Atwood hat and like think of like this dystopian uh, possibility. Like, what if? Um, only women are allowed to work with the mice. On the one hand, that can mean that they have more access to be the top scientists, or they could become like an underclass of the people, much the way that the early computer programmers were all women, and it was like not mm-hmm. considered to be like real work. Yeah. Like that could it could end up being like becoming a hierarchy in very different yeah. ways. Yeah. Yeah. On the other mm-hmm. hand, there are male graduate students who need to do their projects, and so I don't yeah. see how they could actually say, let someone else do my project. I know, like, that, that would probably be very stressful for a lot of the men who are working with mice right now, yeah, because definitely. then they sort of doubt their work. Um, yeah, and the suggestion there, too, is that perhaps when you try to formalize, um, like, some kind of, uh, like, inclusivity that it becomes a problem. It's something that people grumble against. Mm-hmm. Like when you were talking about your Margaret Atwood thing, it made me think about like when I used to play volleyball, um, like for um, like an intramural league, the rule was that you had to have mm. at each play a girl uh-huh. touching it once. And I remember that being the source so of... difficult. Yeah. <laughs> I remember that being the source of a lot of upset. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Also, I could imagine, like, like other, like, what if someone did a trial then to see if there's actually any difference in how mice responded to people of different races in the lab? Like, that could become extremely loaded. <laughs> oh, yeah. I wonder. Hmm. That'd be really interesting, Interesting, but really though. troubling. I don't know if I'd want to know the results. Or maybe we, we should, I don't know if this helps, but instead of saying races, you actually just literally had different skin tone. Hmm. Because... Uh, white black people can have different color yeah, they have there's a wide spectrum and so but it also what i'm thinking about is if the reason that they respond to me differently is because i'm more difficult to see because i'm darker or the lights aren't whatever the case might be would that have an effect versus i don't know what, what their visual perception is like to begin mm-hmm. with yeah it's not very good at all mm-hmm. yeah I oh would right say, they can't see that very far well i know yeah, mice can't see very far in, in front sure. of them i would say smell is kind of like eyes for Mm-hmm. Um, mice so yeah I don't know that'd be the, I kind of want to do that experiment or yeah or like yeah I think that obviously phrasing as race would be like the inherent problem because then that, that sort of brings in a type of apparatus the structure sort of answers that you bring but like if you do yeah something like sight would be really interesting or like Cult- like what if there's cultural differences like what if like a wasp student always wore Ralph Lauren polo or something like that it had yeah. to do something like race I don't know I'm trying to think of like other ways that like uh-huh. cultural differences might translate into olfactory differences or for more like they eat a particular food at lunch yeah, that definitely. like things like that mm-hmm. yeah definitely so how did you get interested in these kind of things um i yeah that's an interesting story um we want to hear it. yeah um it was total it was very just like an emotional interest in smell hmm. um that's uh, odd because yeah. you just pulled two senses together there well, like emotional and then, yeah, sorry. Yeah. Very yeah. sensory still. Yeah. Because, yeah, so when in psychology, like I think vision and then audition, hearing is like this, those are the two senses that people really are interested in. And 
In undergrad in psych, I remember taking sensation and perception, and smell was lumped into this one chapter called chemo sensation, so mm-hmm. taste and smell, and that's it. That's all we got of it. Um, but in the descriptions of um, olfaction, it was just in- interesting and mysterious, and um, obviously, like intuitively so, because there's so many like writers and poets mm-hmm. who talk about smell being this like just this linked with emotion and um, like all kinds of interesting things about it. Um, so then, when I um, graduated and I was interested, found out that I was interested in doing research, I applied to two labs on a whim that studied olfaction. Mm-hmm. One of them was at Cornell, and then I came. Cool. Mm-hmm. That's exciting. Yeah. That's a love story. It was not a, um, exactly, it was not like a rational decision. Well, I don't, I would argue. <laughs> Rationally separated. PhDs never are. Yeah. Hashtag real scientific methods. Yeah. Overly, overly honest science yeah. methods. <laughs> I'm sure I've, I've had a lot of them. What's your, if you have one, what's your best favorite or your favorite personal overly honest scientific method that you've ever done? I have to think about that. Uh, I'm not sure. I don't know. We'll come back to that. Yeah, I was thinking that. So uh, Michelle does this fantastic work on campus, but she's so engaged in other ways. Um, For example, she's been doing a lot of advocacy around international students. Mm -hmm. Uh, Of course, again, both of us are international students, but she's written like really great things as editorials. And she's actually going to be giving a conference presentation specifically on the issues that face international grad students. So would you like to talk a little bit about that, Michelle? Um, yeah, sure. Um, so there's the perception on campuses in the U.S. and Canada that there are a lot of international students walking around, um, and those are backed up by numbers, too. So um, there are some schools. So basically, this is mostly in STEM fields. People are noticing this, um, and it's mostly in engineering, actually, an engineering field. So if you rank percentage of international students and then you rank the fields by mm-hmm. that, um, you see electrical engineering, mm-hmm. computer science, and industrial engineering right at the top, um, where in 2010, there is actually 70% of all electrical engineering graduate students in the U.S. are international. Wow. And at some schools, it's about actually nine, more than 90% of their population. Um, and it is highest in uh, electrical and computer science. And so... Um, that's of interest to me because that means that for engineering academic research, the majority of the workforce is international. And um, when I walk around our campus, um, as well as hearing some other stories, um, what you see is that I think the um, support and attention paid to that population is not commiserate with its presence Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. and its prominence. So... um, and a lot of that, I think, is not necessarily malicious. I think it's just a lack of awareness. Mm-hmm. Um, and so a lot of what I try to do is um, share about the international student experience um, and maybe get that more widely circulated. Yeah, and as again, it's such um, high percentages. Are, the, are we seeing it coming from particular countries? Um, does it feed into other perceptions about hmm. what these people are like? Yeah. Um, at specific institutions, it's really going to differ based on the kinds of relation, where they have relationships and where they've chosen to develop like the international campuses. Mm-hmm. Um, but definitely from East Asia and South Asia, you're seeing a lot of students come. Um, so India, China, Korea, and Japan are some of the mm-hmm. biggest, like, countries of Mm -hmm. origin for international students Mm -hmm. and and I would say um, one thing that um, I've noticed or observed in conversations is that even if those weren't the largest numbers um, by and large people or faculty when they think of international students they think of Asians Mm -hmm. Um, they don't think of international students from European countries Mm -hmm. Yeah, so when they're talking about international students, they're really picturing in their minds uh, Indian or Chinese 
the same way diversity just means black. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think a really, that's really interesting because, of course, it, it seems like that feeds into so many other pre-existing narratives, such as, like, the Asian is perpetual foreigner, or, like, always being seen as alien, mm-hmm. even if you have U.S. Even citizenship. Also, perhaps, um, the construction of the model minority having this international dimension, mm-hmm. specifically being STEM-focused, seems to be another issue. Yeah. Yeah, and one other thing that's interesting is maybe when it comes to specifically PhD faculty mentorship relationships, like language proficiency mm-hmm. determines international status a lot, mm-hmm. um, not actual citizenship. So, for example, in um, some of the conversations I've had, um, uh, Puerto Ricans are considered international students by some faculty members. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think there's something about the language proficiency or your like how close are you to native proficiency that determines mm-hmm. in at least this uh maybe not an official label but like the, the yeah. category that you use in your mind do you think it affects um you said not just the services that are offered to international students but like the treatment that they have as um people doing their research or in labs like does it end up having a t- creating a tiered system based on proficiency of english or um, hmm. citizenship status. Do you think there's, a, I guess, do you think international students are particularly vulnerable, both in their workplace and in also, of course, the culture shock that attends a coming to a new country for research? Hmm. Vulnerable? Do you, can you explain what you mean? I guess, more? like, one thing I've heard about is that because, well, I can definitely speak to this, but, like, we always have to be sort of vigilant about our visa status, and so I can't help but wonder that as there are um, increasing attention given to issues of graduate student labor, for example, it would seem like Students who are, are concerned about visa status would be less likely to advocate for themselves in certain ways. Mm-hmm. Um, perhaps working, uh, they might be more accepting of like work situations that may be, may be less than ideal because precisely because they're vulnerable in such a way. Yeah, that's definitely true. Um, and not only sort of their participation in unions or anything like that, um, but even I think visa status is just something that um, causes anxiety for students. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think what it does is it puts international students in a sort of risk reduction mindset when it comes to their own research, actually. So mm-hmm. I'm not going to try and do this glamorous, amazing, like high risk experiment. I'll try and do something that maybe um, I'm more certain of its outcome. Um, the f- which is fine, actually, and I think that anybody who feels vulnerable, um, who feels at risk in terms of their PhD, are going to choose those. I think that's a really natural inclination. I think it becomes a bit more difficult when um, you put that in the context of how much power and determination the faculty advisor has in the future of any student. Mm -hmm. Um, So the faculty advisor may not realize how much of an issue visa status is for international students and how much it affects their Mm -hmm. present research choices. And so that might, um, I guess... Or it probably takes a casual statement like, I don't know if this grant, you know, we need to do more work. I need this by Tuesday to be something they can't say no to. Yeah. Because the grant means something and you don't want to displease your advisor. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So you would actually stay up all night for weeks to get something done, whereas another student may have said no, or yeah. can we extend this? Yeah, and that grant is another, funding source is another interesting um, aspect of, particularly in engineering, mm-hmm. um, where a lot of funding from government, U.S. government sources is meant for U.S. citizens. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and so I think it would be a troublesome situation if an international student did research that contributed toward a grant that could not um, then be used um, to sponsor their stipend. Mm-hmm. Um, and I actually, like faculty in this regard, they seem to really be very aware that that's an issue. Mm-hmm. So when they meet a candidate that they really want to invite into their lab, um, but this person is international, their hindrance is that they might have trouble finding a funding source for them, um, even though they want to invite yeah. the student there. It also makes me think of this, uh, so another way I was thinking that international students might be vulnerable. I remember a study going around where 
researchers sent like emails to professors to see if they'd want to mentor students and the only thing that was changed was the name of the student and that names that were perceived I think to be Asian or even specifically Chinese had like the fewest number of responses and so that there's obvious um, there's a concern about uh, and obviously other studies have been done like of uh, similarly with resumes that if you had a, a so-called seemingly black name then they have fewer responses even mm -hmm. though it's an identical CV but like that within the academic environment that there does seem to be a type of bias dependent on name that might particularly affect international students that might not have anglicized names. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, and I know about um, one study that basically showed that like female international students experience a lot more discrimination in engineering than like they experience discrimination to a greater degree than domestic female students. Mm -hmm. um, so I would definitely I get that, and I have talked to people about this. Um, and then I've also, I guess maybe it's because of who I am, um, like somebody who is an international student, but at the same time, I think I'm not seen by people as an international student, maybe. Um, and so I, and I've also been in the U.S. long enough maybe to understand certain things. I, it's hard I guess I can see things from both sides. So when I talk to people about, you know, like you get an email from a person with a Chinese name um, and I've asked people, like, how do you respond to that? And they say, like, oh, I get those emails all the time, actually. And it's always this kind of like boilerplate email mm -hmm. and um, people attach their CVs and the CVs are crazy and I've never heard of the school that they came from. And like, I've actually gotten a couple of those emails okay. myself um and I think you know as a student I'm kind of like oh like can't you even tell that I'm not a professor or like I'm not the one you're supposed to be emailing or like I can obviously tell that this is a boilerplate email and I guess for me there it's easier for me. I can see why people respond the way they do but at the same time I think because of my other experience as an international student, I can understand that maybe like, you know, this is just, maybe people just don't know what the protocol is. I think the culture, which is what you seem to be alluding to, there's mm -hmm. another, there's a language barrier, but even if you do speak the language, there's mm -hmm. a cultural barrier that I've, I've seen prevent students from being able to interact. So as an example, students, international, international students may feel more uncomfortable talking to their advisor especially if the advisor is a more relaxed person, uh, let's say, call me by my first name. Mm -hmm. Maybe I'm not, never call someone in authority by my first name, or yeah. there's this huge authority mentor or like student kind of relationship. And many faculty I've known have wanted to, if not completely abolish that boundary, just really make it so small that the only difference is like on paper or something. Right. And it can be very hard for international students to cross that boundary and they can't do it with ease mm -hmm. actually yeah and it, it's really hard for them because I've known students who felt pressure because they think well if I want my advisor's attention I have to do these things but I don't want to do those things or they, they right. feel uncomfortable to me or they, they didn't know coming in they had to do that mm -hmm. yeah yeah that reminds me of one conversation I've had with someone before about how they felt like almost an, an aversion like an instinctual aversion to being called doctor so-and-so mm -hmm. um, by their students and I think that's because if I call you by your first name I'm allowing you to express a teaching philosophy of yours that as a PhD student you are I'm trying to nurture you to become my equal mm -hmm. and so um, if that's a strong principle and value that you hold and you attach that to being called by your first name, then it's going to be aversive or challenging when someone refuses to call you by your first name. And I remember um, saying to this person, well, like you have to realize it's just as aversive to somebody who doesn't have those same values to call you by your first name mm -hmm. um, because they may believe that attached to how they address you is this very important value of acknowledging that you are a teacher mm -hmm. and that I'm learning from you and I'm not equal to mm -hmm. you. Yeah. And I think, you know, like international students, um, 
for me, they exemplify exactly what you're saying, a deviation from what's considered ideal in academia. Mm -hmm. So there's an ideal of being an extrovert, an ideal Mm -hmm. of being very confident, Mm -hmm. um, being a good speaker, um, or like being creative. Which let's just say that's also odd because I think... I think we have these two realities, and they there's a gap in the middle mm-hmm. because people also, while the, the current climate is, there's no way you can get away without with doing a PhD and not being great at public, trying public speaking and mm-hmm. and writing and communicating. There's no way everything's group based or lab communication, but people have this image of whatever time point this used to be that we're all introverts and quiet and we just sit in a lab mm-hmm. and have a lab coat and we never talk to anyone and we're just kind of these awkward geniuses right Mm -hmm. I mean they're both still there they don't yeah yeah I guess it's about whether or not academia makes space for people who do deviate from the ideal because I think the international experience student experience is they experience a unique way that they deviate from the ideal Mm -hmm. but you can imagine like a domestic student you're a white dude but you're also just a quiet person who doesn't speak up very much or doesn't feel like competition is necessarily a thing you want to do or drinking beer is not a thing you want to do and I think that if you talk to those students they often also feel a certain alienation or a lack of belonging Mm -hmm. um yeah and I think you know it's the same thing that maybe minority students might experience too yeah like there's I think perhaps across all disciplines there's the way that genius is coded as a certain type of performance Mm -hmm. um and not all of us naturally perform that way yeah definitely Mm -hmm. and the interesting case with international students is that um they're kind of like a silent majority in engineering Mm -hmm. so they feel not belonging even though um you know it, they're the majority actually by number mm-hmm. um, and I I don't know much about like literature or can give you like academic evidence for mm-hmm. what that experience is like but I do think that that's interesting um, there's something about a silent majority there and it's so odd because um, well, one even though they're the majority they don't have the power that major- being the majority gives them mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And in some cases, they don't even they don't realize they have power. Actually, maybe they don't. Maybe yeah. that's the question. And ironically, current in the current political climate, the silent majority also refers to white people right now, <laughs> um, people who are the silent majority who are like we support Trump. I think that's actually what shows up if you go. Like I've seen pictures of rallies, and they'll say that like thank you Trump for standing up for the silent majority. Oh, yeah. interesting. Unrelated, but you, you mentioned oh, it. It's kind I, of interesting yeah. to just oppose those two populations. I was also going to say that perhaps even also dovetails into discussions of immigrants, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then like if there's a, such a worsening attitude around immigrants, how's this affecting international students as like in their experiences also when they're outside of the academy at any time? Oh, yeah. Being perceived as being foreign. Yeah. Yeah. Is the sort of like, is it because both domestic students and international students, they feel that they're guests? They're like, this, this institution doesn't belong to them and never will. They're just guests. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if that maybe plays into why. So there's a lot of They don't take ownership of it. It's only going to be five years. I'll be done. Mm -hmm. I get to at least be in the U.S. Right. Which is weird because no one told you you were going to be in the basement of U.S. (laughs) Of some building. Yeah. Yeah. Or you come to... I think it's always funny um, with the special programs that say, you can come to the U.S., but you have to go here. Mm-hmm. And it's quite often not a place that an American might think that's where I'd want to go. Right. If I were the, if this were my first time in the U.S., let's go here. Yeah. Yeah, and those are the places that want international students the most because mm-hmm. international students are a source of income for universities that are struggling. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I don't really, I'm not sure. It's yeah. kind of complicated and very I was thinking interesting. On, on the undergrad level, like one conversation I'm seeing that's happening is that even though there are a lot of international students that come in, um, that often it's like it's there's a class difference. It's the um, students who are rich in different parts of these different continents and countries that are able to get in. So it sort of ends up sort of reinforcing mm-hmm. class divides back in the home country as well. Right. For yeah, at the undergraduate level. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And they recently cut financial aid for international students or reduced it according yeah so that will exacerbate the it's one of the first things that go um Mm -hmm. i I guess it's it's really interesting because 
um, being domestic gives me an advantage. Um, just because I think it's like, a, oh my gosh, there's another dimension that I'm a unicorn. You know, you add into it, you're also American. And then they go, oh, we want an American. We, we have so few Americans in this program. So mm-hmm. being able to get them in. And then uh, I don't know if you're aware of this, but there's also often a competition like America Compete. So why aren't Americans doing STEM? Why aren't they doing math and science? We need to get them more involved. We're trailing behind in other countries. So we need to get more Americans in these programs so that we can have more of them. And also government jobs. You have to have a certain clearance Mm -hmm. so that you need more domestic people to do those jobs. And Mm -hmm. It's just really interesting how there's this, I'm not really sure what the magnitude is, but there's a push to get more Americans in. Mm -hmm. But yet these pop, the schools are still getting more international students. Um, mm-hmm. That's interesting. Uh, also interesting, some perceptions of what faculty even have of minority, I mean, sorry, not minority students, but international students I've heard, and this is like throughout my career. Um, you know, like Actually, it's like over 10 years ago I heard this, but this guy said he loves getting students from India, straight from India, because he says they work harder and they don't do weekends. <laughs> And he, he always, like, I like to get them straight from India. And I remember my first day um, in this internship was also this woman's first day in the U.S., period. And oh, it was just, yeah. like, really interesting to yeah. kind of witness, like, her her experience of who are you. Like, it was just, I remember her looks like, I just got here. Who mm-hmm. are you? What are you doing? Mm-hmm. You know, to her kind of wearing saris for a whole week before she kind of got into some pants and, like, like getting into clothes and going through the motion and trying to find food and everything it was really interesting. Yeah. So one of the biggest res- critiques or whatever, or like pushbacks that I've heard was like, well, like we should get Americans into the program. Mm-hmm. Um, we need to have space for U.S. citizens. And I guess my thing too is like, I get that. Like why shouldn't a U.S. institution um, educate mm-hmm. U.S. citizens? Mm-hmm. Uh, like, I, I think I understand that instinct. And maybe, I don't know, it's hard for me to come down really hard on one side of the things because I kind of, I understand that instinct too, but I also think that, you know, the problem is that right now you don't have um, U.S. citizens in graduate programs. You have a lot of international students, and you shouldn't be mistreating them yeah, while they're way, there. Yeah, as a way of trying to make up for mm-hmm. having the American citizens, uh, right. citizens like, mm-hmm. I think it comes down, like, it's perhaps trying to simplify a much more complicated issue about um, structures of education mm-hmm. in the U.S. that are enabling or not enabling people to have access to good STEM mm-hmm. support and right, totally. education. It's like, yeah, work on getting your citizens interested in STEM and joining graduate programs. But, like, if that's the final goal, you still have to realize the current reality that there's a lot of international students and not a lot of university support for them, like let alone financial support. So, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I've heard that one um, thing that tends to be a big deal is that, uh, along with the culture shock for international students, that mental health is a big is a big one too. Like, like a lot of conversation that there's often a lot of cultural difference and stigma around seeking help. Mm-hmm. Um, is this something that you come across in your advocacy work? Um, not so much, not okay. directly. A lot of it has to do with maybe cultural. Um, adjustment, social mm-hmm. cultural adjustment, um, but I haven't really come across much of that. I think I've been more focused on the pedagogy aspect of it mm-hmm. and just trying to change um, or raise some awareness at the level of faculty. So for... what has your awareness awareness efforts been like on campus? Um, well, let's see. I um, did a research project, a qualitative research project, um, which I'm, is published in a um, like the Center for Teaching Excellence Working mm-hmm. Papers Journal. Um, and I'll be giving a presentation on campus at an engineering education <laughs> conference this week. Um, and I wrote a little bit of an op-ed for the Cornell Sun, um, which you can look up if you like. And I guess um, maybe um, it's hard for me to feel like I'm can gun-ho, like, super activists, like, make very straight declarative statements about things, because in talking to international students, while, 
you know, when I talk about visa issues or when I talk about their experience, they often say to me like, oh, like, yeah, like I do feel that way or I've, I really resonate with that and that does represent me well. Um, but I think when it comes to what they want done, um, there's a whole other divide there because I feel like, you know, if I'm trying to advocate or represent international mm -hmm. students or even like try and make some kind of change, like does it, should it be the kind of change that international students want? Mm -hmm. Because when I do talk to international students, they will say, you know, I don't participate in um, student government or I don't participate in unions um, because we have it fine. Mm -hmm. Like people in the U.S. complain a lot and they actually have really good situations. So I'm fine with how things are. And that's something I hear a lot from international students. And mm. I guess for me, it's like, if I'm like, like, should we be pushing for changes in policy or even... When they say, I'm fine. Yeah. Like, is that forcing people to have rights that they don't want to have? Which is so weird, because then, are they really fine? Are they saying they're fine, or are they saying that they're living, right? Like, do they have a raft that they can float on? Yeah. Or are they just saying, I'm going to tread for 10 hours until a boat gets here? Oh, <laughs> yeah, and I wonder, I wonder if it's because um, they have experiences elsewhere that they're contrasting to, right? Like, they're not mm -hmm. thinking about the present, but they're thinking U.S. institutions are great mm -hmm. compared to, mm -hmm. you know... Mm -hmm. Yeah, or the idea of, well, at least I'm in the U.S. I get to be in the U.S. Yeah. Um, I've, I've heard that before. Of like, I get to travel whenever, and, you know, this is a nice experience for me. Mm -hmm. So it's worth it. I mm -hmm. don't want to have to go back yet. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and in engineering, um, it's true that a lot of international students, about 80% of them, want to move on to an industry job mm -hmm. in the U.S., mm -hmm. In which case, the school is really for them not a goal, but sort of, and I wouldn't say necessarily a means to an end, but I would say they see that really as part of a step in a final goal. And how do you get these numbers? You, you've got some great statistics here. Um, from papers. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of study about people, international students entering into university. Mm -hmm. Then international students exiting university into the workplace, but not so 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 much about what what they're doing while they're here mm. at least in terms of the sort of academic stuff so if there were one thing you'd want someone to know about an international student if they ever um, meet one in their labs or when they are reintroducing <laughs> themselves to the international students who in their office they may not have thought very much about what would you say um, I would that we say, haven't mentioned already uh, yeah so like the practice the practical aspect of it I would say that um, if it if you can and you want to um, you should try as hard to understand and get to know and step into their space um, as international students and immigrants of all kinds mm -hmm. try to do in the US um, like realize that people are getting like paying taxes in a country that they don't know they're getting social security numbers they're doing science like scientific research at the cutting edge in a country that you know they don't know very well and they're coming to they're going away from family and friends mm -hmm. and um you should try really hard to understand them and without expecting maybe like don't expect so much that like, we are the ones that must bend, but maybe you should bend a little bit. Yeah, and perhaps this is a, a good segue to talk, ask Michelle what she's doing afterwards, because I believe her next step is actually going to be in the U.S. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I'm an international student in the U.S. in the rare academic field, so I'm going to be starting a tenure-track professorship in um, psychology at a small liberal arts college at Earlham College. This is like your, I remember this is your dream job doing the small liberal arts college thing because yeah, like definitely. that's not something we have in Canada. So that's so yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah huh. we, we don't have many different, I don't know how to describe it. I was trying to describe it to a friend the other day. Yeah. The different types of institutions don't, it doesn't work the same right, way. Exactly. Yeah. And I, I remember hearing what it was is that um, there's good government funding to universities and that's distributed based on the number of students. Mm -hmm. And so it doesn't really 
makes sense to have a small private institution. Yeah. I guess we don't really have private institutions in Canada. Hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But it's fantastic. Like, yeah, uh, your students are so lucky. And also the thing is that she managed to resolve the two-body problem because uh, Michelle's recently married. And, That's right. And her partner has a job in the area, right, in industry. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I have to say that it totally sucks. So for anyone who does it, like, even if you're not two academics, um, it's always hard to coordinate. And that was some of the suckiest part of their mm-hmm. job hunt mm-hmm. and actually would you mind talking about what that was like going through the job application process especially sure. coming out of graduate school um let's see the one piece of unsolicited advice i give everybody is don't defend the same semester that you apply for a job mm-hmm. um so job app started well you guys talked about this in previous episodes like jobs app, job app started in October 15th and like was the first one that was due for me and then like all the way to like March mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. then uh, inter- like if you had a phone interview or anything like that that happened all the time and then at the same time I was I defended in December and I think that was a lot that was too much um so it was really tiring and it was not a good idea I so that's that too. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Zion did the same thing. So yeah, that was probably don't do that. Um, and the whole process. Um, yeah, I'm just gonna um, go ahead and sell out the school. Um, I had a st- strange dream, maybe, of teaching neuroscience and psychology to engineers, hmm. and so I applied um, for Olin College of Engineering in Boston, um, and they were the most I felt so humanized by... Humanized. Yeah. Uh-huh. Okay. Um, humanized by that process. Uh-huh. Because all the other schools, there was no responses. They maybe didn't write an email or you didn't hear back anything. But yeah. when I sent my application to Olin, they replied with an email that was like, that someone must have written, a real person must have written it. And they said, hi, just wanted to let you know that we got your application um, and here's our estimated timeline um, if you have any questions in the meantime, feel free to get in touch. And I think that was the first time I felt like yeah. somebody actually treated me like a person. I know. There's such small kindnesses in the job application yeah. process, yeah. but like not having a form email is just one of them. Mm-hmm. Like, and it, it goes a long way because it's such an emotionally grueling process. Oh, for sure. And yeah, it made me want to be like, hire me. <laughs> like, totally, I want to work with you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it was pretty... It is not the best. It's really not a very good thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's very tiring. The other thing that was um, challenging about writing a dissertation and applying is that often it felt like the kind of mindset, analytical mindset I needed to be in to write a good dissertation was mutually exclusive with the sort of like performance exhibition mindset mm-hmm. that you yeah. need for interviews. That's mm-hmm. so true. And so flipping back and forth was a bit of a challenge. Um, but then I guess it's good, good to practice. have practice. Yeah. Um, but that's pretty much all that it was good for. <laughs> that's what professors do, right? They're always selling, right. but they have to write grants that aren't, they have to talk bull, but what they write can't be purely bull. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 And I think maybe a hard thing about it too is, um, like getting a job is talking with friends who went through the same process and, um, didn't get a job mm-hmm. um, or are still wondering what's what next. That like? um, I think that's really hard. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I really don't know what to do about that one other than I try to not be... I'm too exhausted to be too excited right now anyway, but I think, like, yeah, it's hard because you see really, really good people who are amazing, and if you started a school, you would definitely hire them. Mm-hmm. Um and then you really, yeah. Yeah, I'm not really sure. I don't know either. I think it's a question we wrestled quite quite a bit, like survivor's guilt. Mm-hmm. One way I've heard it described. Yeah. Uh, I like that. Yeah. Well, the name, not the mm-hmm. process. Yeah. That is really hard. Kind of t- piggies back onto what we were talking about with rejection and renewal last yeah. week, mm-hmm. because, or two weeks ago, however long. And, yeah. um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, even with like uh, fellowship applications. Um, NSF, only 2,000 people won, so not people, not everyone can get it, you mm-hmm. know, there's only 2,000, 
but you still take it extremely personally when you don't get it. And when people do get it, it's like they can't celebrate because they have to be considerate. But yeah, yeah, yeah. And like all the things that you could tell people, you know, because you've gone through it, that if you weren't, you did not have a job, like nothing would actually work. Mm -hmm. Like I could say to a friend in the humanities, like, job market is rough but that's not comforting to yeah. anybody at all <laughs> mm-hmm. like it's like it's not you it's the job market mm-hmm. and in some ways you're like yeah but in the end like that I'm still you know like I still am worried about like if I have a roof over my head yeah <laughs> mm-hmm. so yeah anyway it's not a good thing um although I think yeah yeah I don't quite know how to navigate that Although, I will say to all my friends that um, as soon as I can, I'm going to invite everyone to be guest speakers. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, just, like, perked you. up. <laughs> First of all, Earlham is an amazing school. Um, Chimamanda Adichie mm, was yes. a speaker there. Oh, that's amazing. And one of their freshman writing seminars actually reads her book, Americana. Nice. Mm-hmm. I read that, like, just a couple months ago. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's really, it sounds like a very cool place. Um, and in terms of, um, like, something your podcast talks about, like, diversity issues, um, they have a very large international student, first-generation, um, and um, underrepresented minority population, mm-hmm. um, so much so that um, it's sort of more 50-50 in terms oh, of wow. representation. And so that has me thinking about interesting questions about um, what's it like to teach in a classroom like there are now techniques that I could use or things that I could do that I couldn't otherwise um yeah so I'm sort of thinking about that more that's awesome they're lucky to have you I know you're like the quintessential PhD but actually (laughs) oh my gosh I can't wait to see your picture on the website looking all faculty nice yeah faculty photo yes it's gonna be so amazing yeah over over an hour and I have to say that like Michelle has so many interesting things to talk so about like, there's a like she's like teaching at the Cornell Prison Education Program right now there's so many awesome things but I do think we can't let it go I was gonna say she loves Jesus and it's like <laughs> wait, that's not exactly required like a you know what I mean oh my gosh um yeah so many amazing things obviously takes great photos um cooks well knows how to take pictures of people who are like 50 shades different than each other um still make us all look fabulous so michelle thank you so much for being on our show on our podcast and for being one of our original listeners and supporters from the very beginning helping us and just for being awesome enough to be on our just amazing thank you as always you can follow us on facebook and twitter under their um, PhD was podcast. Please subscribe and rate on iTunes, and we'll see you next week. Bye.